0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Sullivan Meyer and I'm joined by my co-host Neil Reddy. We're so excited to welcome Mr. Gregory Zuckerman to the show. Uh, Mr. Zuckerman is a nonfiction author and special writer at the Wall Street Journal. Before joining the journal, uh, Mr. Zuckerman was managing editor of Mergers and Acquisitions Reports, a trade publication um, for Investment Dealers Digest, and the New York Post as a media reporter. At the Journal, Zuckerman is an investigative reporter covering business and investing topics. He is a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism. He regularly appears on CNBC, Fox News, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg Television, and more. Uh, Zuckerman's works include The Man Who Solved the Market, uh, Jim Simons' Launch, The Quant Revolution, The Frackers, The Outrageous Inside Story of the New Billionaire Wildcats, and his latest book, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Death. Uh, of the life or death race for a COVID 19 vaccine, uh, which covers uh, the mRNA COVID 19 vaccine development. A shot to save the world was long listed for the Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. Uh, Mr. Zuckerman, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here, guys. Great. Um, so, I mean, this book is, is fresh off the presses um, and it's a remarkable achievement. Um, so, I, I want to start by giving our audience kind of an idea of what it's about. Um, would you mind just giving us a quick synopsis?
1: Sure. So, A Shot save the World is uh, the book. Uh, I tell the story about how we develop these vaccines. They are modern science's greatest achievement. I would even argue modern finance's greatest achievement. We're a little too close, I think, to these achievements to appreciate them. Uh, but uh, in time, I think we will realize uh, as a society how important and, and life-changing, life, life-saving um, they are. So what I do is I go back and I explain how they were developed. And I begin years ago, even decades ago, because these approaches, and I think it's important that people realize that these approaches were developed over many years. So I give you uh, the, the drama, frankly, that that took place as stubborn scientists around the world um, seized on these unique new approaches and were told, to give up on them and they ignored them. Um, and then I bring you up to 2020 and the drama that took place last year when the virus emerged and uh, a few interesting characters uh, and, and efforts uh, decided to focus on developing vaccines and threw themselves into it, that, that effort and, and the drama that, that arose.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me about this book uh, when you're talking about this narrative is that we we typically discuss the COVID vaccine uh, and focus on how quickly the vaccine was developed. Um, But in this book, you spend the first, you know, two, 300 pages illustrating how this is like perhaps a misleading narrative. In fact, the vaccine was developed over many decades, culminating in the race to address the COVID crisis last year. Um, So when you began the process of writing this book, did you expect to start that early?
1: I like in my work to take a step back and give some perspective. And I also frankly like to um, surprise the reader. So I think most people picking up the book will assume I'm um, starting sometime in 2018 or 2019. And I instead, I do start with a pandemic but it's not this pandemic, I start with AIDS. And um, it's been a no- number of years obviously and I think most readers, even older readers, have forgotten or just never knew about that effort in that um, period and the, the vaccine chase there. And it's very instructive. There are parallels. And, and frankly, I'm trying to, and maybe me by saying this, um, suggest that uh, I I've not accomplished it, but I'm, I'm trying to subtly let the reader know that it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we'd get these vaccines. So if I first tell you the story about AIDS, then I think on some, some level, the reader realizes, well, geez, we didn't get a vaccine there. It wasn't a sure thing that we'd get one here. So we appreciated that much more. And there, there are all kinds of lessons that we learned from AIDS that we've applied to COVID. And frankly, some of the vaccine approaches that have worked with COVID were developed for AIDS. So I think it's important to go back. And I just find that that effort really interesting. And a lot of the reason why I write things is just selfishly, I find them interesting. I want to pursue them. I want to learn about them myself. I didn't know. So I wanted to explore.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, that that perspective was pretty important. When I was reading the book. It's not something I even fully realized. Um, uh, but I think this is also perhaps indicates something problematic about the way we told the story of the vaccine um, in kind of like the popular media. Um, uh, so like while acknowledging that this is like a revolutionary technology, um, do you think kind of uh, the language you use around it, Operation Warp Speed, uh, the race that we refer to, do you think it's perhaps harmful to like the public's understanding of like the scientific process that went into this?
1: I think it is, I think it's a good point. Um... I'm not sure. It is funny because it was developed remarkably quickly, uh, historically. I mean, in 330 days, we went from um, knowing what the sequence of this virus, this new virus coronavirus uh, was to developing uh, a vaccine or authorization of a vaccine, not even developing, we developed quicker than that, but just authorization, which is ridiculously fast. And there were reasons why we we went faster last year. We could talk about it, but um, yeah, in some ways, that speed does undermine confidence. You know, I I speak to a lot of vaccine hesitant groups, or at least sometimes when I give speeches or I'm on TV, there's a segment of the population that's vaccine hesitant. And some of them are reasonable, but not all people who think that Bill Gates put a chip in our brain uh, with these vaccines and those vaccine hesitant people rightfully reasonably say well greg didn't you don't you say in your book that the average vaccine takes 10 years and that the record was four years four years until last year and that was months and now you're telling me to take a vaccine that took 330 days so those people are kind of reasonable and and um wary for for uh not not crazy reasons so, yeah, I do think we don't we we the government, whatever the vaccine companies haven't emphasized enough the the their the long history of these uh approaches and how long it took to get to them and and that should be reassuring for people and and frankly, I think if you read my book, you'll be reassured, so I am trying to get to more of those kind of audiences, not that it's my goal I, you know I'm not an advocate necessarily, but um I'd like to save lives if my humble self, you know, as a writer, you don't usually have a chance to do that. If I can help people, I I think that'd be great. And um, I think people should be reassured and this book should be reassuring.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And um, to circle back to a a sort of different theme, um, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about personal narratives, um, constructing the, the like narratives of these individuals who are involved in the vaccine development. Why was that so important to you in the creative or in the writing process, and what what role do you think it serves in uh, the overall thesis of your book?
1: So my approach as a writer is a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. In other words, I've written a a number of books at this point, and they're usually about really complex, challenging, um, complicated issues, potentially boring issues. So my first book was about the financial meltdown, two thousand eight. And the second one, and it involved CDO contracts and CES contracts. Um, and then my second book was about the energy revolution and there's fracking and geology. My third one was about algorithms and, and math. Uh, it, it's about um, a few uh, a firm and one person in particular who developed the, the greatest uh, investment approach and, and team ever and firm and funds, and they've just changed everything. And um, these are, and, and this one is about biology and, and viruses. Um, so I, and I always have two different audiences. I have audience of specialists in this case, scientists, but I also want to appeal to the average person. Um, and so as such, I try to get at it through the people. And I think you can accomplish both. You could write something for the the specialist who wants something more technical, but um make it entertaining through the people who responsible for these achievements. I write about individuals, and it's a I go to the same theme each time. I don't do it consciously, but I'm partial to that theme of unlikely characters pulling off something huge that's changed the world and how they did it. And I, I don't know, and, and partly I, I do these things selfishly. I, I I'm partial to that theme. I enjoy people learning about their stories. I mean, I bet each of you and every one of your audience has some interesting story. They've overcome something, some challenge, some obstacle. Maybe your parents did. Maybe your, your, your grandparents did. I just find that, that those stories fascinating. I mean, my, you can plot me down at a bar mitzvah next to some dentist. And I bet you that dentist got an interesting story I can find. And I'm not, being I'm being genuine about it. I think everyone's got some interesting story and it's my goal as a writer to explore that and to share that and to um make the reader um um entertain the reader but also inform the reader through those characters so yeah that's my goal it's my strategy it works for me I don't know if it works for everybody but um I also think as writers we don't my colleagues at uh, we don't spend enough time writing about the people. We're very good at breaking news. We reporters, we're very good at the, the thought pieces and telling you where the world is going. But I, I want to explore the, the people behind certain achievements. That's sort of my my approach to my writing.
0: Yeah. And I certainly think that part of what made your book so compelling was the people in it. Um, but it's not just that Thank they're you. like people. Um, it's that they're like they're really interesting, and at some points, like iconoclastic people. I mean, these scientists you talk about, they're dedicated to their work, they're visionaries. Um, they also can be, like, quite difficult and sometimes toxic. Um, so uh, did you kind of view this as, like, an unhealthy dynamic in the industry? Why do you think that kind of thing develops? And, like, is it a structural issue with the industry, or is it just kind of the way that innovators and
1: visionaries work? So it's interesting when I write these books, I often get the reaction. Hey, Greg, I, I really like the book. I just don't know about these characters. Do I like them or do I not like them? And I love that reaction. Frankly, um, I'm a big believer in in the gray and, and too frequently other writers and others kind of movies, whatever. It's always like black and white, the hero and the villain. And um, I get why as a narrative uh approach that works for people and it's but it's just sort of simple and it just, just doesn't reflect life and you know maybe I can make I could sell more books if I can if I, if I rounded off the edges to my characters and again made them more distinct as heroes and villains but I just don't believe in that and um I like to explore that that gray and yeah I, I'm not sure myself and, and, and to, to your point there are a lot of characters in my book who've changed the world who've saved lives who've going to go down in history. Do I want to grab a beer with them? Do I want to have a cup of coffee with them? I don't think so, frankly. I mean, some of them I, I do know a, a little better on a more personal basis. I had a little book event a few weeks ago up in Boston, and some of them came, and we get, we, we did break bread together, and they were enjoyable to be with around. But to your point, um, yeah, some of these people are difficult. I mean, specifically, Stefan Bansell the CEO of Moderna I write in my book about how he pushed his people really hard early on um, to the point where they were collapsing in the office. They were collapsing in the parking lot of the office, at home, hitting their heads, going to the hospital, being rushed to emergency rooms. And in his view, in his defense, he believed in their approach, their mRNA approach. And and he said, guys, we're going to be the ones in a crisis to save lives. And we need to be prepared. Um... So, you could argue that, um, and you can defend him by saying, okay, he, he he felt this urgency and he wanted his people to feel an urgency. Um, so, in, in, in to, into your question, maybe it takes people like that. Stefan Bansal, like you said, I mean, a little bit, he, he's a little bit like a, a Steve Jobs kind of character. People said similar things about Steve Jobs. And maybe it takes those types of people to change the world and to save lives, do something historic. Now, I'm not going to say. Every one of your audience needs to be a jerk to accomplish something big in life. I don't believe that uh, to be the case. I've seen others in, in my work who, who are kind. And and, and, I, and I also don't want to leave the impression that Stefan Benzell isn't kind. I mean, frankly, to his friends, he's a he's a great friend. He's a better friend than I've ever seen anybody in my life, frankly. He, in the middle of 2020, when he, his, his company's going all out to try to build a vaccine, and um, there's pressure on them, it's not clear they can do it. And he's literally their lives at stake and his company's future's at stake and he literally is getting on Zoom calls with friends to find out how they're doing. He's reaching out to others to to, to, to ask how their jobs search is going. Um, so the point being he's a great character like a lot that I like. He's not he, he's not uh, he, There the reasons to be critical but also reasons to really admire them and yeah. So to your point, I, I don't know, maybe it takes take these outsized characters to do something big, but also my, my books are about, it's a self-selecting group. I write about the the, the people that succeed. So for every kind of jerk who, um, who succeeds in, in, in my book, in my books, maybe there are a hundred that don't, and, and it didn't help being a jerk. So it's hard for me to say. Yeah, that's, that's certainly interesting.
2: And I guess I want to move to another part of that which is sort of the forces at play from the institutions themselves against pushing back against these individuals and their new ideas it seems like there's a lot of that in this book like from the the larger companies or maybe even the investors and uh, people in venture capital um, who they, they seek to get funding from do you think this is a healthy force or do you think perhaps it's a little bit more inert and these individuals are rightfully pushing back against a lot of stagnant in, uh, in the biotech, bi- like pharmaceutical industry?
1: Mm. Good question. Uh, yeah, there are all kinds of obstacles that are thrown up uh, in front of all my characters and their approaches. Just so your audience is aware, those who don't, haven't read the book or aren't following necessarily that carefully, the uh, messenger RNA vaccine approach was developed over many years and m- most, I was about to say many, but most in the scientific community were skeptical. And for good reason. Uh, ms is a, it's a molecule and it doesn't last very long in the body. So why would you want to bet on an approach that uses this unstable molecule? And the other approach I write about, the viral vector adenovirus approach, which led to the Janssen and Johnson vaccine, as well as AstraZeneca vaccine uh, used in Europe and elsewhere around the world. Um, that also had its critics. So uh, to answer your question, um, listen, I think skepticism is is healthy and necessary. And, uh, yeah, and, and yeah, these people had to overcome all kinds of obstacles. I don't think it's excessive. It's hard for me to say. I mean, frankly, there's so many dreamers out there. There's so many people with pie-in-the-sky ideas, approaches that the, the experts say are never going to work. So I don't think the, the, the lesson is that there shouldn't be skepticism of these people because for every MRNA advocate, there's someone advocating for something else that just doesn't work. I mean, on a personal basis, um, my father passed away and my mother remarried a guy who's a doctor, who's got a thesis about autism. And, um, it's uh, an unpopular thesis about the explanation and, and how to treat autism and, and, and stop it. And, um, you know, maybe he's going to be proven right in the end, but there are all kinds of reasons to be skeptical of him. Um, but um, I think the, the better lesson, at least for me personally, is just not to dismiss the dreamers. And there are companies I write about, like in this Novavax in my, in my book, that a person like me, a financial journalist at the Wall Street Journal, the stock's trading at $2 a share. I'm very dismissive. I say, well, geez, look at that stock price. They failed over and over and over and over and over again at finding vaccines. So, a guy like me, Greg Zuckerman, would say, Just don't, you know, get, would give up on those guys. And maybe, and the lesson for me is not to, because in the end, they actually have produced a vaccine that's going to be very effective. And we don't need it really in America, but it is going to be very helpful elsewhere. And the point is, there are serious-minded scientists uh, in the basement of, of labs around the world, and maybe their stocks are trading at $2 a share, but they've got an approach and maybe it'll work. And, and it hasn't worked until now, but it still could. So I think the lesson for people like me, cynics or skeptics, is, is not to be so cynical or skeptical and to um, leave hope for, for some of these dreamers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely see the value in skepticism. And I think we'll get to uh, some of the, those upsides a, a little later. But I want to press more a little bit on kind of uh, what seems to be like a, 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 an endemic kind of uh, skepticism in the institutional industry, especially in the big pharma companies. Um, as you pointed out, uh, the scientific process is about taking risk uh, and not just taking risk, but like actively failing a lot um but you know i think especially that like great scene um after uh the the aden- i'm not sure how to say this word the adenovirus hiv uh, vaccine uh, um uh, that that vaccine failed its early trials There was a big conference i'm sure you can describe this a little bit better um where like these scientists kept coming up and saying like oh we failed we should not have invested in these resources um and it seemed like they had kind of lost an appreciation for like a fundamental part of their job. Um, so can you like kind of see an anxiety about risk and failure creeping in? And, and is there any way to, to, to counter that? Should we counter it?
1: Well, yeah, so to, to your uh, point, the, the story is about how Merck had an approach and it spent years on it or several years, an approach to combat, uh, to build an HIV vaccine. And they were excited about it. They thought they'd be the ones to stop HIV, they spent a lot of money and time on it. And it didn't work. And they basically shuttered the whole group. Um, And yeah, you could argue, well, they shouldn't have, but I don't know, they're investors, um, um, small and large investors behind these companies, they um, may not be comfortable losing money. So there's a balance there. And we, we live in a capitalist system and I'm a big believer in capitalism. I always say, I, I kind of uh, joke, you know, it's a version of the Churchill, but it's the best, it's the worst system other than all the others. Um, so um, if you've got shareholders in, in other areas that um, could be more fruitful, there's reason to, to shift gears and, and to not take as much uh, risk. The, the criticism of Big Pharma can be that they, they like incremental advances, a drug that's a little bit better than an existing drug, as opposed to the big home runs. And I would grant you that that's a valid criticism. But there is venture capital money out there, especially in America, more so than any other country. I don't think we appreciate enough the ecosystem in America and how many investors are ready to write checks, huge checks, um, they hope that maybe in a decade or so, there'll be some profits. I mean, no other country can, can claim that ecosystem. And frankly, I've talked to the executives of all these companies, and they're often foreign-born, and they all say that were it not for America and American investors, these vaccines wouldn't have been created. So yes, while big pharma maybe can be criticized uh, for focusing on incremental advances, there are enough, thankfully, other companies biotech startup type companies that are out there um um shooting for home runs, swing for the fences. So so at least we, we can be reassured about that.
2: Certainly. And um yeah, it's, it's one thing I noticed while reading the book was like the emphasis on sort of getting venture capital money in a lot of these cases and and how these scientists were basically pitching to these firms, like basically like a commercial product, like basically like Shark Tank or something like that.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. M- 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 money is a lot more important in this world than I had expected. I- I'm not from this world. So um, I figured academic scientists, NIH, you, know, you get a lot of money funding and you- you're off to the races, but they're always, they're like politicians. They always have to keep raising money and raising money. And it's a huge focus, yeah.
2: Right. And I guess, like, another portion of that question I wanted to ask was if you think that perhaps the dominance of private industry in a good that perhaps has this great public effect should justify maybe more government spending. And, like, do you think that would happen in the years to come as a result of what we've seen in the private development of these vaccines?
1: I'm not a huge fan of just throwing money at problems or the government throwing money at problems um i like private industry taking the lead but the problem is obviously in terms of pricing in terms of equity uh, we're having a real issue now in terms of sharing vaccines uh although i wouldn't fault the companies necessarily it's the u.s government as much as at fault as anybody else the the, the companies are uh, easy targets but the u s government often has locked up these these batches of vaccines and, and won't let the companies um as part of their contracts uh, sh- share elsewhere um but yeah there i'm not a to, to your question i'm not a I'm not a health policy expert frankly, so I'll defer to others on that question yeah
0: i think uh I think there's an approach to, to federal funding here, um, especially uh, another role of the government is uh, creating these regulatory frameworks. I mean, a lot of the money that these companies w- wind up having to spend is not on the actual development of the drug or the molecules, but like going through phase one trials, going through phase two trials, going through phase three trials. Um, it's a really hard process to get in the vaccine business. And then you point out that the, the, the profit margins are really not not crazy high, uh, unless you develop something like a COVID vaccine, which is going to billions of people. Um, So uh, do you think that there's a way that the money that that the government could not necessarily like throw money, but like kind of target money or perhaps uh, update the regulatory framework to make it easier for these agile companies that bring these innovative ideas to the market to actually then like turn it into a product, and not just an idea?
1: Well, I think the problem that you mentioned is being solved, and I'll explain why. So taking a step back, um, it, it surprised me very much who it was that stepped up to develop these vaccines. If you think about it, Moderna, no one had heard of going in 2020. BioNTech, no one had heard of. This group in Oxford, University of Oxford, had never developed anything. No drug, no vaccine that was approved or authorized. Novavax is a dinky company going out of business going into 2020. I can go on and on to people that I write about in my book. And yet they're the ones and who, who didn't develop a vaccine. The vaccine giants, Merck. I mean, Merck's got the vaccine that you guys are, all have. We all had inside us the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella. They're the vaccine giants. Sanofi, GSK. And why didn't they? I, I write some about the drama and how Merck debated chasing a vaccine for COVID and did some work. And But I would argue that a lot of these companies, to your point, vaccines are not a sexy business. Historically, you get a vaccine once a year, once a lifetime, that's it. It's just so much you can charge as opposed to a drug, which is administered every day. You take a statin every day, that kind of thing, or offense every day. So vaccines have historically never been a really popular business for for for-profit companies. So to your question as well, what can the government do to address that? I don't think they need to anymore because now with the billions and billions that companies like Pfizer and Moderna are making on these vaccines, I think a new era has begun where people realize, investors and others, that vaccines actually can be very profitable. Now they're turning their attention to vaccines for other things, malaria, back to AIDS, cancer, other kinds of things. So... I'd like to think that maybe um, that problem has been solved by all the profits that have been made by these companies over the last few years. Yeah, I I think this is like an
0: interesting thing to point out, because it feels like. uh, And it's a little bit like this with climate change, too, to be honest, where it's like it seems like the government's kind of stagnated in passing policy, especially policy that, or industrial policy, or research development policy. Uh, and yet, I think you do see in your book, like a huge evolution in like the likelihood of success for small companies in the vaccine space. Um, do you think that's a product of, of, of a change of government policy? Or is it the product of like, uh, more private capital, more high risk capital, VC firms entering the space? Um, I'm sure it's a mix of both. But how do you see
1: well, the government was played a very helpful role last year in terms of uh, Operation Warp Speed, in terms of uh, working with the companies, which is good. But I don't know, will it last? I don't know how long that will last. We were in a pandemic. It's not clear we're gonna to continue to have that kind of cooperation and urgency. But uh, yeah, listen, I'm at the Wall Street Journal, I'm a capitalist. So I think when there's an incentive uh, for, for for companies, for private companies, public companies, to, to chase, uh, have a goal that they see they can make lots of money that, um, creates a, an urgency and, 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 focuses the mind. So, um, just all this money that's been made, um, I know it gets people uncomfortable, but it creates, uh, an in, incentive for, for other companies to chase other diseases, uh, illnesses, etc So, um, I think that's, that's healthy. So the private, the, um, again, the, the, the market uh, can, can be helpful as well, not just public policy.
0: Yeah, I gotcha. Um, looking at, uh, I guess, kind of shifting focuses a little bit, um, we touched on it a little bit, uh, but despite the incredible triumph of the, of the vaccine um, this year, uh, distrust in science is kind of at a, an all-time high, uh, certainly distrust in vaccines is an all-time high. Um, uh where's the disconnect between these historically successful results and the public's perception of the field um and did that mistrust motivate you to write this book at all did you did you try to address it and appease it a little bit
1: well i don't i don't address it specifically overtly i do it subtly in that um i do believe you come away from my book reassured about this process but yeah to your to your point uh now you're getting me depressed a little bit, but yeah, it's very discouraging how these scientists have, um, have went all out and have this uh, historic achievement. And yet, and, and they really did go all out. I mean, the ones I'm thinking of that they really have been psychologically damaged by how um, they've been working 24-7 for over a year to try to develop these vaccines and then for people not just to be wary and, or, or not take them, but to accuse them. Of trying to harm or not just the sign, not just the, the vaccine specialists, the public health officials, people like Tony Fauci, et cetera. I mean, they're not faultless, they've made mistakes, but for people to to point the finger at them um, is very discouraging for somebody like my, me. I mean, everything is politicized today in society. And um, in, in some ways, these vaccines were developed because of individualism and the ability of certain people to ignore these skeptics and to say we're going to figure it out ourselves but the 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 flip side of that coin is another characteristic of america where it's that individualism that that i'm going to ignore the experts and and rely on this youtube video i saw or my brother-in-law spoke to someone and she said, don't take the vaccine, even though my internist of 20 years, who I trust, uh, it says that they're, they're, they're safe and effective. I mean, um, it, it's a remarkable period we're in where there's such skepticism and, and doubt of um, public health officials and, um, and science. So uh it's it's much like everything else in society everything is it's tribal it's uh my side versus your side and oh if you you like the vaccine then i can't like the vaccine it's your team versus my team so uh yeah uh it's a very uh trouble troubling time we're in
2: yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned like public public health's role in all of this i think they like kind of are an intermediary between the hard science and the people you you mentioned in your book and also just the general population. And I'm sort of curious as to whether from writing this book, you got any sort of insight into how public health had such a massive failure in the last year and whether there's any sort of connection between uh, th- these companies and public health or was it sort of like the government's um, own doing in, in creating mistrust in the vaccine, not necessarily the scientists who made the vaccine?
1: Well, public health can be criticized to the extent that the government can be criticized, I guess, uh, for downplaying the virus early on, for the role all the vaccines wasn't done very well. But but public health officials have been warning. Tony Fauci has been warning. Other people have been warning about potential pathogens like this one for years we chose to ignore them um but there had been ample warnings so people have been prepared but things like having just masks and and such um they're they're, listen we're very short term oriented people uh society civilization i don't know about other countries but i know the united states so for people to um, plan about for a potential in the future is, is, seems too much to, to ask um, of them. Uh, so uh, public health officials, I think, tried their best. They, they, they were caught flat-footed to some extent by this pathogen, but not, not all of them. And um, listen, we're in an era of, of pathogens, of, of viruses, of new viruses often. So we need to be prepared for the next one. Uh, I'm not necessarily optimistic (laughs) we're going to be, but these vaccines will be. So the beauty of mRNA is they can be developed; they can develop a vaccine quickly. So at least we'll know we can turn around and develop a new one. I think for the for the next pathogen.
0: Yeah, I think you raise an interesting distinction here between kind of what the public health community is doing and what the government is doing. Um, One thing that we've heard from government officials a lot over the last years, uh, you want to trust the science, you know, trust the science, what does the science say? Um, but one thing that we see is that uh, the science community, especially the public health community, uh, you know, has a hard time dealing with epistemic uh, uncertainty. I mean, they're scientists, they, they wait for a lot of data to come in before they make conclusions. Um, and this means that like in the early stage of the pandemic and also in the early stages of the vaccine development process You see, there's uh, thousands of experts, all who have their own opinion, who have their own role in the discourse, and there's often not like a unified voice of science. There's just a lot of scientists. So do you think that uh, we as a society, and especially the political system and government officials, need to fundamentally reconsider, you know, our conception of science? Um, And if so,
1: how might you modify it? Yeah, I I guess there should be a better understanding of the scientific process, which means various opinions and debates and disagreements. And it's funny, there there are some regional people that I do debate with who are, um, I guess you'd say vaccine hesitant. They've been vaccinated, but they don't believe in mandates. They're not so sure about masks or they don't believe in masks, that kind of thing. Uh, They're not 100% sold on the vaccines, even though they've been vaccinated. And right, that's the first thing they say. Well, they, they tell me to believe the science, Greg, but the science, the scientist says this, the scientist says that. Um, but, but that's the point A scientific process can be messy, is messy. It should be messy. That's the, we don't want them to develop a consensus and stick with it. I mean, that's Tony Fauci's defense when he says, yes, early on, I said, don't wear a mask. And I was wrong. And you could argue he was trying to mislead and maybe he was, but that's a separate issue. Um, But there was disagreement along the way uh, among scientists, but that is the process. But we do, they do come, they do arrive at a conclusion uh, eventually. So yeah, it can be seen as messy, but maybe we need a better understanding of that process and not to be, not to be so quick to accuse and to label and to point fingers and uh, there, there's this animosity towards people like like Tony Fauci that's just unfounded. Again, he, he'll make mistakes and they all have made mistakes. But they, all those people that I've talked to within the NIH, they're 70, they're 80. They've been going to, into those labs for, for, for years. And frankly, they could have left years ago and made a fortune working for private industry. And they've decided to stay. And you could say, well, they're just power hungry and they want the, the acclaim, I mean, part of it, I suppose, but mostly they're looking out for us and they're trying to heal and help. So um, we need a better rec- recognition of that, I think.
2: And uh, just to wrap up, um, as you know, we like to ask all our guests a uh, B question for policy punchline, which is what is your punchline or what is the idea that you'd like our, um, our audience to take away from this interview?
1: I guess it's the fact that these vaccines are science's greatest, modern science's greatest accomplishment. And we need uh, a little more of an appreciation but also understanding of those accomplishments um, and how they evolved and an appreciation for the years of, of, of persistence and resilience on the part of these researchers, scientists that I write about and the drama that went on behind the scenes and what they overcame so um we maybe take it for granted uh, how effective these vaccines are but just remember back early 2020 middle of 2020 we weren't sure how effective they would be and even if they'd be developed so i hope there's a little more of a, an appreciation of that um and yeah i'd love to hear what you, you guys also think i mean you you guys come out of your own perspective how could we have How could we, I'd love to turn around on you guys, how could we have um, dealt with this pandemic better in terms of the world of science or public policy? Sounds like public policy is your focus. Give me an idea or two that you feel that we didn't do, we we could have done better, something that we could have done better.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is hard to say in retrospect, um, but I think one thing we've seen with the Biden administration, is that, that we did not see so much in the Trump administration, uh, I guess, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I think Biden goes out and takes steps that are like broadly popular um, or like uses the force of the federal government that beforehand the public health community had kind of waffled on. Um, so you see the vaccine mandates through OSHA. Uh, you see approving a third booster shot. Um, you see a um, uh, 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 pushing for waiving the IP um, with the WHO uh, for the vaccines. Um, and, and these things have not been uh, universally successful, but I think that they have uh, successfully knocked COVID numbers down. Um, and more importantly, they show that the government is taking an active role in it. And while they're not always, uh, uh, you know, 60 or 70% popular, um, I do think that they, they, they have, once again, like showed that he is taking it seriously um, and that he's taking an active role. And I think that's because he's not, he, he's not so concerned with like getting a scientifically uh, 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 defensible conclusion from like the little bit of data he, we have. He's just acting with what information he's received. He's acting as, as, a, as a public and governmental leader and less as a scientist. And I think there's something to be learned uh, by the public health community about that um, is, is at least the way I've kind of seen the last few months certainly. I don't know if Neil uh, agrees with
2: that. Yeah, I mean, I guess my sort of critique of public health would sort of be the, the idea of messaging and, and unintended incentives. Like, I think we've sort of seen the last year that public health officials aren't the best people to like go on TV to talk about this stuff necessarily just because of the ways that we've seen people sort of like waffle and and maybe just like come to conclusions that maybe they would change within a week and it's sort of just been a a mess in terms of messaging and and getting the population to adopt a sort of stance on COVID to take it seriously um and so I guess that's probably my biggest critique
1: from what I've seen interesting interesting yeah listen uh we were in a pandemic and uh We've never gone through this before. You could argue AIDS was, but that's a long time ago. So I think we were learning on the go. Uh, so, um, you know, some of this is, is hindsight is twenty twenty kind of thing. Right. But um, we can learn. We also can learn from some of these lessons too. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and I've honestly like already learned so much, even though like your book, I don't know, your book like changed my perspective on the vaccine. And then this conversation did it again. So it's been a, a, a real pleasure.
1: It's been fun for me too. And, and I encourage your um, audience if they want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear pr- different perspectives, constructive criticism, any kind of reaction from the book. Uh, I'm easy to find. So please feel free to rea- react.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to plug?
1: <laughs> no, uh, read my books, let me know what you think and uh, stay in touch.
0: Great. Well, that was uh, Mr. Gregory's Ackerman. He has just released a shot to save the world, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, My name is Sullivan Meyer. uh, And and I'm joined by Neil Reddy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And uh, we hope to hear you, uh, see you again here.
1: Thank you. Thank you, guys.